I'm Bonnie. And I'm Sydney. And this is Introduced from Wisconsin Sea Grant. This story starts in the summer of 2009 in Germantown, Wisconsin, which is this little community 25 miles northwest of Milwaukee. And residents of the Esquire State subdivision became concerned when they noticed what they described as small lobsters crawling through their lawns at dusk. The more I learned about this story, the more I realized that like it was actually very serious and there was a large-scale investigation. A million dollars were spent trying to contain these crayfish. And yeah, people devote their entire careers trying to make sure things like this do not happen. Another thing that's interesting about this is that I feel like you hardly ever hear about the first time an invasive species gets established here. Like we've done a lot of reporting on invasive species, but it, a lot of times it's species that have been here for a while or weren't introduced in my lifetime. And by the time that we discover that they're even there, there's kind of no chance or hope to get them out. But in this case, it was the first time that red swamp crayfish were discovered in Wisconsin. And so you do have a fighting chance against them. And another thing is that people still reference this today. So I was surprised to learn about all of this because I have unknowingly driven past this development like a lot of times growing up. But after hearing the story, I kind of wanted to go back and see it again. Germantown is kind of a funny community just in that it's like really, really into its German heritage. Um, what do you mean? I guess like picture, picture just like a town that was built like between 1950 and 1970, but like everything is stucco, like the McDonald's, but like make it German and stucco. Some of the street signs are in German. It's really funny. I was also hopeful when I went that I could meet someone who was there in 2009 and could tell me a little bit more about what had happened in that place. So Esquire States is right off the main highway. I parked my car in a cul-de-sac and just started walking. So most of the houses in this development, I don't know, they just look like classic subdivision homes. Like this could be literally anywhere in Wisconsin. All of the backyards, they're all situated in a ring around like this kidney bean shaped pond and then all the backyards slope down into the pond um, and then the, the water was like this really striking shade of turquoise blue, um, which I feel like can't be natural. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so the pond was a lot bigger than I had anticipated and there's actually this island in the middle of it with a community swimming pool on it and you can walk to the island across this little bridge and I could see people sitting out there on like chaise lounges around the swimming pool and there were all these kids laughing and splashing in the water. I really, really, really wanted to see the pond, but I felt like I was going to have to like trespass across someone's lawn to do that. There was like a sign that was like really clearly stating that like you couldn't go back unless you were a resident or like a guest of a resident. So I just kept walking and the first person I met was a woman named Mary. She was in her front lawn and she told me that she'd lived in this neighborhood for 27 years. Do you fish back there? Uh, I, we don't, but a lot of people do, yes. Yeah. yeah. The kids do a lot. But the water is clean. Did you want to go look back there? 
can I? As we walked around her property, Mary told me more about the crayfish problem. She said that the first time she saw a crayfish was actually two years before the 2009 incident. I know I saw it, it was kind of near the uh, culvert area that we have in the back where the water drains out and I had seen it way before it was a problem but I didn't think much about it you know I just kind of thought somebody used it as bait and it'll die out you know kind of thing you know so but it didn't so <laughs> oh my gosh she saw it a few years before yeah there is something really really eerie about that to me I don't know it's it feels like one of those moments where two alternative reality is just kind of diverge um yeah so if the crayfish were around for a while but no one did anything what changed mary said that the winter before all of the fish in the pond had died like at what point did people decide this is a problem and we should because they were crawling all over the lawns and stuff um somebody on the other side um actually called the dnr gave them a picture of it and asked them if this what what this species was or anything because it was multiplying quite a bit. So, and I think that's when they kind of got involved when they realized huh. what it was, actually, and stuff, and how invasive it was becoming. The first thing that the Department of Natural Resources did was send someone out to collect a few samples, which they took to this crayfish expert who worked for the Milwaukee Public Museum. And right away, they were able to confirm that like this was a red swamp crayfish. Two days later, Heidi Bunk remembers getting an email confirming that there were red swamp crayfish in the pond. Heidi is a lakes biologist for the DNR who does everything from coordinating community science programs to issuing building permits to answering phone calls from concerned residents. Heidi has a huge hand in everything that comes next. So August 25th, 2009 is when we got that phone call. There were giant lobsters wandering all over Germantown. That's the call we got. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So the DNR springs into action. Scott Van Egren was a natural resources scientist at the DNR back in 2009. Now he's a regional lakes biologist in Rhinelander, but back then he was just finishing up grad school. Scott had some previous experience researching crayfish, and so when he got the email about the red swamp crayfish in Germantown, he knew it was something that he wanted to be involved in. Along with Heidi, Scott would become one of the main handful of people who focused on Germantown. So the DNR staff went down to the pond and saw what they were dealing with. The fisheries staff, you know, right away started to walk around the pond and net and pull out crayfish, you know, I think at first we were thinking, well, this is, you know, these crayfish are sold for crayfish boils, like that that could be it. Somebody just dumped their live crayfish that they didn't completely use all of them and maybe there's not that many. Um, so, you know, they would, they would catch like 10 as they walked around. We asked basically everyone we talked to what their first impression of the crayfish was that day. And everyone said they were huge, like, The biggest ones were eight inches long and they were more aggressive than anyone expected. Like (laughs) a lot of people that research crayfish are used to like the Wisconsin native crayfish or even the rusty crayfish, which is invasive, which apparently are a little bit more calm and like skittish. They run away from you, but red swamp crayfish will like 
charge you, is what I understood. They're fearless, yeah. The Red Swamp invasion in Germantown was a particularly big deal because this was the first red swamp crayfish introduction in Wisconsin. Red swamp crayfish had never been recorded in Wisconsin before, but they're kind of notorious throughout the world. They've become invasive in a lot of different places. They become really abundant and they spread fast and they're really hardy. We talked to Stephanie P.A. She's a British ecologist and independent crayfish researcher because the species of crayfish that are invasive in Europe are the ones that we have native here in North America. Seeing as Europe in total has only a handful of native crayfish species, Stephanie is really impressed with the ones in the US. The United States is, and in particularly the Southeast, is a global hotspot for crayfish biodiversity. In terms of the number of species that are present, and a lot of them unique to specific areas, in some cases specific river systems or cave systems. You've got cave-dwelling crayfish in some parts of the United States. I went to a crayfish conference down in Missouri some years ago. And there's over 80 species in that state alone. So you have the most amazing wealth of these weird and wonderful animals. Because of global trade, people have been moving crayfish around. And some species of crayfish, including red swamp crayfish, are common in aquaculture. Like people farm them because they're good to eat and they taste like lobsters. The fact that they can be so large is what makes them popular for boils. Red swamp are amazing burrowers. They really are. Uh, and they're also really quite terrestrial. They live down in, naturally, in southeastern United States. So places like uh, Florida and uh, that, that area. And they live in seasonal ponds. So they're used to things drying up. So they have two survival strategies. One is head out and the other is hunker down. So head out, they will go and walk over land um, until they try and find somewhere that's a, a wet pond they can move into. Hunker down is where they pull up the drawbridge, literally. They're in their burrows. It's drying out, uh, out outside. So they stop up their burrows with a mixture of mud and spit and try and stay in damp conditions in, in this deep underground burrow and wait it out until it gets wet again. We mentioned it in the last episode, but red swamp crayfish, their burrows can destabilize dams and other earthen structures. So you can see they're pretty tough to control. What we had learned about these crayfish was that they might be able to walk a couple miles across land, and there are lots of little stormwater ponds, drainage ditches. The Menominee River was, uh, you know, within a mile or two of this. And what, if they got in a river system, it would be, it would be out of the genie's out of the bottle, right? You can't, you can't put them back in. Then <laughs> we're not going to get them all if they make it to a river or a stream. So this was basically a ticking time bomb. Yeah, the. Menominee River leads to Lake Michigan, and Germantown itself is only a 20-minute drive from the Great Lakes. So, yeah, 
For the DNR, the first step was to secure the perimeter, which is, you know, blocking culverts and exits and kind of stretching a fabric fence around the whole lake to make sure that no crayfish got out. But that didn't really work. And the crayfish uh, were not very impressed with this setup. We <laughs> <laughs> just burrowed right under it. So now the crayfish are clearly out and they're on the move. So the question is like, where did they go and where are the crayfish now? Because the surrounding area is full of woods and farmland and wetland. And you can just picture like on a bone dry day, all of this would just look like grass like these culverts and ditches, but like add a little bit of water and all of a sudden you have this network of channels like ushering the crayfish out into the great wide world. So it was really important to figure out where they had gone. So at this point, the DNR calls in the water guard. The water guard was this group of conservation wardens who in the summer focused exclusively on protecting Wisconsin's lakes, rivers, and waterways. Chris Hammerla was part of the original response team. He remembers scouting ditches, turning over rocks along highways from the early, early morning until nightfall. The other thing the water guard was trying to do was figure out how the crayfish got there. So they would go around to local schools and ask them if they had been distributing crayfish to students. And he would walk around the subdivision and knock on people's doors and ask them if they had seen the crayfish or <laughs> if they knew anything about where the crayfish might have come from. And like, honestly, I can't imagine outing myself at this point. Like, that would be so embarrassing <laughs> if it was you. <laughs> Um, yeah, here's what that conversation would have sounded like. Hey, good afternoon. My name is Chris Hammerla. I'm, I'm a deputy conservation warden. Um, you've probably noticed the DNR staff working on your pond. We're looking for these crayfish. Perhaps you've seen them crawling across your yard and that's how you'd open up the conversation. They were going all over the place asking people for information. A few people were like, well, yeah, um, we, we saw some in our yard, or we saw some crawling across our, our driveway. So at that point, it led us, you know, well, when did you see that? Oh, we've been seeing it for the last month. We're like, okay, well, this is a bigger issue maybe than we think. This isn't a new population, and potentially these things have spread. So the water guard expanded its search radius. Now they were looking in places roughly a mile or a mile and a half away from the pond trying to gauge just how far the crayfish could have walked, and that led them to a stormwater retention pond at the police department, roughly a quarter mile away from the pond and across a busy road. So what we actually ended up finding first was just some pieces of red swamp crayfish on a rock, like a raccoon or something had eaten it. So it's like, oh, okay, obviously we need to check this pond out better. So then you kind of look around the pond, well, here's, here's an area with some rocks. You start pulling up the rocks, oh, here's a red swamp crayfish. As they're evaluating how far the crayfish have made it away from the pond, they also need to evaluate how many crayfish are in the pond and like where in the pond are they? Very distinctly remember going down to the pond. It, it was late morning. They were just clearly everywhere in the ponds. So uh, they were abundant in full force. That was Jake Vanderzanden, the director of the Center for Limnology at UW-Madison, and 
someone who spent a career researching aquatic invasive species. He came down to help the DNR learn about the crayfish, where they came from, um, kind of like what their life histories looked like, and where they were in the pond so that when they started trying to remove the crayfish, they would be as effective as possible. I remember like the first time I went, I, you know, was in my swimming suit and going and just, you know, poking around and picking up red swamp crayfish and uh, getting bit, you know, occasionally. Uh, you know, out in the middle of the pond, it was it was fairly deep, but around the edges, there was sort of a nice uh, sort of shallow, shallow area where you could uh, wade and... Uh, and find crayfish. And these crayfish were pretty happy sitting in these uh, shallow nearshore areas, just hanging out. I remember finding it really not that humorous to be in this. I mean, it, it, I just sort of felt that this pond was nasty. I don't even know why I felt that, but it was the yeah. blue dye. And then it's yeah. also just envisioning all of like the uh, like oils from the road running off into this little pond and everything, you know, yeah. <laughs> stormwater pond. And, uh, and then I asked, and then there's the element of, okay, I need to get in there and I need to be snorkeling around because like I'm the biologist who's supposed to be the one who, you know, really comes in with these insights about, you know, the, the location of the burrows and, and that sort of thing. But this is the kind of thing that biologists do, you know, like you end up, you end up in golf course ponds and, you know, it's just the way it is. So, yeah. Most of the work Jake does is really academic. He observes invasions that have already happened. For example, the rusty crayfish invasion that has been going on for the last like 60 years in Wisconsin and um, how they impact lakes. But this time felt different. We're dealing with a real world situation that we don't have any control over. This is not an experiment. This is a crisis, right? So Jake sent some of his students out to help. Here's what Scott remembers. So within two weeks, we had um, students out there catching crayfish with, with many traps. I, I think there were like a hundred some. And, and then the catch went up to like 60 to 100 crayfish a day. If these crayfish were from a recent crayfish dump, they would have all been about the same size and the same age. But from the trapping that students did, they were seeing crayfish of all different sizes and sexes and life stages. Clearly, they'd been established longer than a few months. Once it was clear that there were thousands in the pond, the DNR started thinking about doing a chemical treatment. And by chemical treatment, I mean using chemicals to kill all the crayfish in the pond. <laughs> Just want to acknowledge that there's a lot of euphemisms being used in this episode. <laughs> Naturally, the DNR looked for other people or organizations that had used chemicals before to control crayfish. Um, because Wisconsin hadn't done this before at all. And it turned out not many other places in the U.S. have really done this. You know, there really wasn't much out there in the scientific literature about about chemically controlling crayfish. You know, our, our staff were really, you know, kind of trying to break new ground here. So there were a few chemical options to think about. Like, you don't want some a chemical that's going to stay in the pond for a long time, you know. And so there was this insecticide that they had thought about using, which to me, I wouldn't have um, gone to insecticide because crayfish aren't insects, you know, but apparently they're close enough to insects that we can use an insecticide. So there is this chemical called purinil that they could use, but the challenge to using any of these chemicals is that there are regulations that prevent you from using them. 
to protect people, I guess. Um, and so like you can't use them on waterways in the US unless you have the right permits and getting those permits takes like a year. So they wouldn't be able to use this insecticide right now, but they still needed a short-term solution. So they decided to use bleach. So imagine a 4,000 gallon tanker truck showing up in your neighborhood on a Tuesday morning or whatever and pumping bleach into your local pond. Yeah, when I imagine that, I don't think I would be pleased necessarily. <laughs> like, I, I guess I would want to um, want to get the crayfish out. I think I would have a lot of questions. Scott and Heidi said that the residents were really understanding with like the gravity of the situation. Yeah. And also, yeah, the bleach did kill everything else that was in the pond, but they also said there wasn't much else in the pond because that fish kill had happened the year before. So they treated the pond with bleach and they also had someone like go around to each individual burrow and apply bleach into the burrow to make sure that they were getting the crayfish and that crayfish couldn't hide. And the burrows are like pretty easy to spot. They're just like little holes in the ground and like sometimes there's like a little column of dirt where um, you can tell like the crayfish is burrowed out. And they were using like roughly the concentration of bleach that you would want to use if you were going to clean out your shower. And after this treatment, it appeared that there were no crayfish left in the pond. Heidi showed us a graph of how many crayfish are caught throughout the few months. And after this bleach treatment, the number goes like directly down to zero flat line. But when the DNR came back the next spring, the crayfish were back too. So it's the spring of 2011 and the crayfish were back in Germantown. The numbers of crayfish climbed even higher than what they initially were. Once the DNR does get funding again, they start looking for expert advice. They decide to invite none other than UK crayfish expert Stephanie P.A. They kindly invited me out to come and have a look at the site in 2012. Stephanie was really interested to see the site, like she had been actually advising them for a little bit on this. So Stephanie gets on a plane on her way to Wisconsin. Stephanie has experience using pesticides to control crayfish. Her main thought had to do with the fact that the burrows were above the water level. I said, you've got to deal with the ones that are in the banks. Otherwise, it for sure will not work. So that was why um, I recommended doing a measure which would dig out the banks and put down an impermeable surface. These are techniques that I'm familiar with from big construction. So the, the question with that was what can and can't red salt crayfish burrow into if they were going to put a new bank on? So they designed what they call this crayfish condo study where they take plastic bins and different sizes of rocks and gravel and then um, put crayfish in there to see you know, what they can burrow into and what they can't. It was amazingly hot when I was there in, in Ger Germantown. I think there was, a, there was a heat wave going on. So the temperature was up over 40 degrees centigrade, so up over, over 100 Fahrenheit. And I'm not used to working in heat like that. But amazingly, despite the fact that red swamp crayfish, are, you know, they're an aquatic animal, I think they coped with the heat better than I did. You think, wow, that is an impressive animal. 
They also learned that raccoons love crayfish. How did they learn that? <laughs> so um, one thing that Stephanie wanted to do while she was there was run these experiments on the island during the night. Stephanie just left some buckets. There were 10 buckets and each bucket had 30 crayfish, so 300 crayfish. And they were testing out like these different concentrations of chemical to see like how the crayfish would respond. But um, she was doing this on the island and the residents didn't want anyone to stay on the island overnight. So Stephanie leaves and when she's gone, the raccoons come. Here's Heidi. The raccoons essentially had a frat party there. And all that was missing was the crushed beer cans. Um, what did it look like? A disaster zone. There were torn crayfish everywhere. Crayfish parts up in trees, on shrubs, stomped on. All the containers were turned over. So there was quite a party of raccoons that had a, had a pretty good time. So the next order of business was to do the bank treatment. The bank treatment was this idea that Stephanie recommended. It was a way of completely altering the shore around the pond to make it inhabitable to red swamp crayfish. So they removed all of the brush and plants and trees along the shore of the pond. They brought in giant diggers and scraped away all of the soil and any remaining crayfish burrows 15 feet around the shore of the pond. They lined that with impermeable fabric, brought in truckloads of gravel and rocks, and put that on the shore, and the neighborhood had their new shoreline. After that, they were able to use the insecticide. So meanwhile, there are still all of these crayfish across the street at the police retention pond, which this pond is completely man-made. It's smaller and nothing else really lives in it. So if they can't eradicate the crayfish in the pond, they decide that they'll just eradicate the pond and completely fill it in. Wow, that seems like a very big decision. Right, like just cancel the pond. <laughs> the pond no longer exists. <laughs> yeah, Heidi kind of spoke to that a little bit. The decision came because we knew that both the bleach and the Purinol were not going to kill them if they were in the burrows. And we wanted to eliminate the habitat for these crayfish. So the idea was to fill in this pond for approximately five to seven years. So obviously the crayfish and the pond were eradicated um, at the police pond, but what about the Esquire Estates pond? In 2015, the year after they did the bank treatment and the insecticide, they only found two crayfish that year. In 2016, they didn't find any. In 2017, they found one crayfish. And in 2018, they didn't find any either. How could they go from having zero to one? That makes me feel like there could be more than one, even if it looks like there aren't any, you know? So in this case, complete eradication wasn't achieved. And to be honest, I'm not surprised because I pretty sure there were a few red swamps lurking around on the wrong side of the barrier. You know, when you're thinking about eradicating species, like I said, I never want to use that word. I, I kind of don't think we should. It's almost never possible. So I think the lesson learned for all of us 
is, you know, if you, if you really think you're gonna eradicate something, that's a pretty tall order. And if it's not just something in a little pond, it's probably not possible. Throughout this whole time, there was this ongoing investigation to see how these crayfish got in. No one really wanted to commit to a single theory, but I'm just curious like, from what you've heard, are there any that you think sound the most plausible? I don't know. I think leaning towards like the crayfish boil theory, maybe someone ordered a box of live crayfish and then somehow they got in because I don't know, it just seems like it would take so many crayfish initially to create an invasion this big. What do you think? Yeah, I think um, the more people have been involved, the more likely it is that we would have an answer right now. And the fact that we don't, I think it was like a very small number of people, if not one person. There are still a lot of lessons that the scientists involved have learned from this. First of all, they've learned just how to contain and control red swamp crayfish, which, you know, there hasn't been much research on. While they were conducting all of these surveys and ditches around the police department, they also made some other discoveries. For instance, they found a few rare species of frogs and even rare native crayfish. And that was surprising to Scott because he doesn't usually think to monitor environments like this. So I asked Mary, the woman who lived at Esquire States, who I talked to at the very beginning, I asked Mary if she had any wisdom for people who might live in communities similar to hers. And she said that the most critical thing someone can do is do not stock crayfish or anything else in your pond or your river. Situations like this are so preventable. Just do not stock crayfish or anything else in your local pond or wetland or lake, river, just do not do it. 